when you do trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not solely on your own understanding, he is there for you. He's there for you. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. This morning we are beginning a new series of studies entitled Cultural Prodigals. And our scripture reading for this morning comes from Exodus chapter 2. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn to Exodus chapter 2 as we read verses 1 through 10. And again, you'll find it on page 89 of the church Bibles. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We're looking this morning at the birth of Moses and the extraordinary circumstances surrounding his birth. Exodus chapter 2. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. Today begins this brief series of studies entitled, as you know, Cultural Prodigal. And the question we'll be asking again and again over these next three Sundays to take us to the end of the month is this. What do we do when the culture and society around us impacts us, impacts our children, impacts our wider family, and how do we respond to that? And so that's the question that will weave its way through these three Sundays together. And this morning, as we come to the story of Moses, and we explore the circumstances surrounding his birth, we ask, first of all, why is his birth so significant? Why is it 
a narrative that's packed with extraordinary events and high drama. And of course, as we've been learning in recent weeks, as we've studied the book of Ruth, the question that will always come back to again and again and again and again is, where is God in the midst of all that's taking place? And so that's where we're heading this morning. It's worth reminding ourselves, even if it's ever so briefly, that the birth of Moses changed not only the life of his family, but it changed the direction of an entire nation. And it is not an exaggeration to say that the hinge of history opened the day that Moses was born. During that time, Pharaoh was an anti-Semitic dictator. The Hebrew people lived in desperate conditions. They suffered horribly under slavery. They were oppressed, mistreated, maligned, misused, abused. Many had died at Pharaoh's hands. And again, it's not an exaggeration to say that Moses was born into a crucible of oppression, brutality, and hatred. That was the circumstance he grew up in. It's reasonable also to say that the Hebrew people in those days lived in incredible fear. And they lived in a context of brutality and fear for this reason. In chapter 1 of Exodus, we discover this, that Pharaoh commanded that if a Hebrew girl is born, let that girl live. If a Hebrew boy is born, he is to be thrown into the Nile. And as you can imagine, with almost a million people living in Egypt with a Hebrew background, children were being put to death on a daily basis. Now, with all of that as a contextual backdrop, let me encourage you to come into chapter 2. And the words in chapter 2 are startling as they begin. Now, a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant, pregnant and gave birth to a son. Now, further on in the chapters that come, we learn a great deal more about Moses his mum, Jochebed. We learn he'd an older brother, Aaron, who was three years older than he was. We learn of Miriam. We're about to discover his sister Miriam, not quite a teenager. We would estimate somewhere around 12 years old. And like any family, they would just delight in having children. We saw it this morning, all of the celebrations with the Nidrach family and how thrilled and excited and pleased we are for you and all that is coming your way, the blessings and joy of children in a family. And let me encourage you to use your imagination this morning and in your mind's eye to be thinking what it was like when Moses' mom, Jochebed, went to her husband, and said, I'm expecting a baby. What is the first thing that would go through his mind? I think it would be delight. I think it would be a joyous occasion. 
And then there would be a pause because their next thought is this. I so hope it won't be a boy. Is that any way to live? I hope it won't be a boy. And you can imagine the thoughts racing through their minds. You can imagine the late night conversations as they're lying in bed talking about their future. Not just how will Miriam, 12 years old on the cusp of being a teenager, how will she take to a new addition to the family? Not only how will Aaron respond, but what will we do if it's a boy? Can you imagine the silent tears when... They eventually blow out the nightlight and lie there and toss and turn and what if and but and maybe. Can you imagine the fears, the concern, the sense of overwhelming dread? That's giving us a sense of what's going on in this passage. An overarching sense of hopelessness and impotency. There's nothing we can do. And then, of course, they start to plot and plan and scheme in their minds. Well, maybe we could hide them for a few months. And Jochebed says, but what happens when the neighbors see that I'm expecting? Well, we'll try and keep a low profile. We'll keep you in. We'll say you've been unwell. Well, what happens when he starts to cry during the night? When the neighbors hear, won't they give us away? Can you get your mind around all that is taking place in the life of the parents of Moses? What on earth are they going to do? The tension, the fear, the difficulty, the anticipation of what might happen? And then Jochebed rises to the challenge. We see here a lady of remarkable faith. Talk about creativity. Talk about ingenuity. They were to give birth to a son, and verse 2 tells us this. When she saw he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when they could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch, and then she placed him in the basket and put it among the reeds in the bank of the Nile. Now, do you honestly think one Friday evening it just came over her? We need to give him up. We cannot hide him any longer. They get a papyrus basket. They cover it in tar and pitch. They put a little blanket in it. They put Moses in it, and they set him off down the Nile. Moses, we hope it works out. It's been good knowing you. You've blessed us these last three months. I don't think so. I'm fairly convinced that during those three months, Jochebed would be walking up and down at the side of the Nile, praying, thinking, planning, plotting, scheming, holding Miriam in one hand, Aaron in the other, Dad is at home with baby Moses looking after him as mum tries and engages with all that's happening and praying and praying and praying and praying, crying out to God, Father, what on earth are we going to do? And as she's walking up and down the Nile, 
the penny finally drops. And she notices one of Pharaoh's children, a princess. And of course, they immediately leave and go in the other direction. And the next day, as they're walking and thinking, they see her again. And the next day and the day after, and they begin to realize, now hold on a second. What if there is an opportunity here? And not only is she a lady of remarkable, significant faith, she's planning and thinking and praying. And you can see her on one of those occasions coming early to do her daily walk with the other two. And of course, she sends young Aaron off ahead to play and she's watching and she's got Miriam by the hand and says, Miriam, there's something I need your help with. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a basket. We're going to put Moses in the basket. And I need you to promise me a secret. You will not tell anyone else about this. You can tell dad and I, but no one else. And we'll put him among the reeds there in the Nile, close. Do you remember the pretty lady with all of her servants who come close to that spot? And then we'll stand back a little. And I will try and crouch down behind the reeds. And I want you to kind of just very pretend this is very casually you're walking along, it's spontaneous, you see a baby, you hear his cry, and just as you go over, the princess and her servants approach at the same time. And as you're standing there, pretend you don't know your brother, pretend you don't know anything about him, and say, can I go and get one of the Hebrew ladies to look after this baby? And you know, that's been rehearsed again and again and again. Now, Miriam, let me tell you what to say. Now, say it back to me. Let's rehearse this. Imagine I'm Pharaoh's daughter, and you can see all of that taking place. Please hear me when I say this. Because we are called to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. That does not mean ever that God is not asking us to think. We don't simply go through the Christian life in any old casual manner. Of course we have faith. Of course we have a relationship with him. But he expects us to think and to plan and to be fully engaged with the circumstances of life because he gives us his grace and his love and imparts to us a deep and abiding faith. He doesn't then say, when it comes to driving, feel absolutely free to pass a car on a blind curve, you'll be fine. He never asks us in the terms of our finances to be irresponsible and just spend wherever we wish. He expects us to be responsible. He expects us to think. He expects us in terms of daily habits that when we're eating, for example, we cannot exist on pizza and candy and not get to 400 pounds. We can't. He expects us to think in every area of our life. And when we are facing significant challenges, he says to us, think be prepared, pray, trust me, fully engage, be responsible. All of that is coming out right here in this passage. And you know, of course, as soon as 
Pharaoh's daughter sees this wee boy, she can't help but pick him up and look at him and examine him. And meanwhile, Miriam is running back to get mom. And mom comes and mom has to pretend that she's not deeply in love. She has to pretend this isn't the most precious gift ever given to her. She has to be half a step back. No tears, no catch in her voice, no expressing of love, no, oh, don't hold him like that, you're going to hurt his toes. None of that. Casual, distant. And right there and then, in the sovereign purposes and eternal decrees of God, Pharaoh's daughter hands Moses to his mom, gives her heart protection and a salary for raising her own son. When you do trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not solely on your own understanding, He is there for you. He's there for you. Of course she's wise to plot and plan and pray and trust Of course she deals with the things she can control. The things she can't control are out of her hands and she trusts the Lord for them. Now having said all of that, we see in Moses' mom and Jochebed exactly what Ruth was centuries earlier. Excuse me, it's the other way around. Centuries before. Forsaking all I trust him. Do you remember that lesson the last few weeks? Forsaking all, I trust him. That's what's going on right here. Now, you may be here this morning and saying, okay, Richard, I get it. I understand. I see the point you're making. You're facing what seems like extreme circumstance. They're about to lose their child, but in the midst of it all, They are prayerful, they are trusting, and of course, they use godly common sense. Now hold that thought for a moment. Because in this last 10 minutes or so, I want to be controversial this morning. Last Monday, the United States Supreme Court gave their decision on a baker in Colorado whose name was Jack Phillips. And Jack had been involved in uh, his own store, baking cakes, for the best part of 20 years. And on one occasion, a same-sex couple came to visit his store and asked if he would bake a wedding cake for them. And Jack said he could not make them a wedding cake. He would give them any other kind of cake they liked, but he could not make them a wedding cake because he disagreed with their view on marriage. Jack subsequently found himself in court. He received a multiplicity of nasty letters, dreadful phone calls. He lost about 40% of his business And the court found on behalf of the couple. 
And in fact, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission became involved. And they also found on behalf of the couple. But last Monday, the Supreme Court found in Jack's favor. And this is what they said. You cannot judge an individual or a company on the basis of their religious perspective. In other words, you couldn't take a Baptist to court simply because he or she went to a Baptist church. They said, in fact, you have contradicted the statutes of law currently in place in Colorado. Secondly, Justice Kennedy criticized the Civil Rights Commission because they exhibited clear and impermissible hostility towards the sincere religious beliefs of Jack Phillips. The Colorado Civil Rights Commission said this, that you are absolutely free to hold religious views as long as they are contained within the four walls of your church on Sunday morning and you have no right to live out your faith Monday through Saturday, especially in a working environment. Fourthly, the commission was implying that religious beliefs and persons are less than fully welcome in Colorado's business community. In other words, if you hold Christian beliefs on the sanctity of marriage, you are not welcome to open a business in Colorado. And finally, the criticism or the stinging criticism was left at the end. They said freedom of religion has been used to justify discrimination, slavery, and the Holocaust, and for saying that claiming religious freedom is one of the most despicable pieces of rhetoric that people can use. Please understand what's happening here. The Colorado Court or Council for Civil Rights equated refusing to bake a wedding cake with the slippery slope towards the Holocaust. There is a spiritual war taking place in this generation over moral and spiritual standards and for the heart and mind and soul of this nation. This had to go all the way to the United States Supreme Court in order to be overturned. We have no right whatsoever to minimize, marginalize, disrespect, or in any way demean or act in a disparaging manner to others who do not share our view of marriage. We never should find ourselves there. Never, never, never. We are firmly convinced as a church because the Scripture teaches that Christ would treat people who disagreed with him with respect, to fully engage, and never to demean. That's the first thing we do. And secondly... We continue to be the people of God that God is calling us to be. That's exactly
exactly what Jochebed did when the surrounding culture and the power of the day had already determined her son should die. She responded with godly principles, with prayer and planning and action, not willing to lie down or be walked over, but to stand firm. Thirdly, we do not quietly <coughs> clear our throats in embarrassment when it comes to Christian standards. We are not embarrassed by them. We do not apologize for them, but we live them out day by day as men and women of integrity and honesty and transparency and faithfulness because we are convinced that holiness of lifestyle and purity in that lifestyle matters. When the culture and society around us tell us that autonomy and novelty in moral and spiritual standards is the way to go, we say no, and we disagree, and we disagree forcefully with commitment, but with grace and respect at the same time. Because our experience is this, that novelty and autonomy in sexual standards does not work and it leaves experience without love and experience without faithfulness and commitment for the long haul and it leaves tattered, broken lives in its wake. We are not about convenience. We are about commitment within the bonds of marriage. We are and always will seek to live out our faith in the public square, not simply within these four walls. Number two, we commit ourselves to pray and to action and to what? Doing so with grace because we are convinced that the salvation of a person's soul, the renewal of the relationship with Christ, the future of our country is at stake. And if we do not stand up, who will? Who will? We will not be silenced. Neither will we be marginalized. We will never see ourselves as extreme or irrelevant. But what we will do is this. We will live out our faith day by day by day in medicine, in law, in education, in raising our children and like Jochebed and her husband, we take the stance of what? Forsaking all, we trust him. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning and say thank you that you proved faithful to Jochebed and to Moses and to all that you had in store for him. Be with us, please, O oh God. 
as we take a gracious stand for Christian principles. Help us, please, to be fully surrendered and submitted to you and to live out our faith with respect for others, but nonetheless, to live out our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First Presbyterian Church of Greenville invites you to a celebration of freedom as we worship and thank God for our spiritual liberty. Services include favorite anthems and hymns and a message by Dr. Richard Gibbons.